0: Ratchet Book Club, Hood Classics, Good Classics, Derek, sometimes Nisha, we in the building, you're welcome, 916-633-1537, Ratchet and ratchet at gmail.com, Ratchet Book Club on Twitter. You can leave a review on Podchaser, do it for episodes and shows, it's all good. You can also leave a review on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher, you know, whatever your fancy, but just let me know where you left it at. Are y'all liking this book? Like, Seriously. Somebody just told me that they were shocked that I gave them a good movie recommendation. I'm like, the fuck? I don't give bad movie recommendations. I tell you to avoid bad movies unless I like them, at which point there's something wrong with you for not liking it. So, in that, I guess I'm biased when I say this movie, this book, well, this book, definitely not the movie. This book is fucking fetch. It's fetch as fuck. It's fetch as fucking fuck, you fuckers. The movie though, oh the movie can jump off a fence and kick itself in the dick, but the book, if you ever get a chance to watch the movie, let me know that I'm right, cause trust me, whoever did that movie should be fucking ashamed of themselves, I used to think that Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory was the worst adaptation of a book until I saw this movie. Imagine, my wife and I had just gotten married. I was so furious about how bad this fucking movie was, that I might have cussed. Which you don't do around your wife until like five years into the marriage. Also see farting in the open. You don't use the bathroom with the door open until you're about nine years into a marriage. After that, all bets are off. i said too much. Maybe I haven't. Chapter 15. Brian Curvier is pissed, and worried. Spinkter gripping, scared because he had Bobby Z and let him get loose. Find him, he tells Johnson. Johnson standing there in the parlor, hat in his hand from old-fashioned manners, not from respect. The hat band leaves a red welt on his forehead, where his receding hair is going to gray. He stares at Brian. Johnson doesn't say it, but his look says it for him. The look says, listen, you fat fuck. It's a big goddamn desert out there. Brian reads the look and answers the unspoken words. Bobby's a surfer boy dope peddler, Brian says. He's soft. He doesn't know the desert. Won't be no day at the beach. He did him so pretty good last night, Johnson says. Johnson's seen the bodies already, seen the wreckage. The sun's not out at night, Brian snaps. Johnson just smiles. He figures he knew that already. Ain't all that hot this time of year, he says. It's still the desert, Brian screeches. Fat Boy wouldn't know the desert from his dessert, Johnson thinks. Fat Boy lives in the desert and hates the sun. Wears them big hats and old lady dresses all the time and hides from the sun. Says inside most of the day watching those movies. Black and white desert movies. That's what Fat Boy knows about the desert. I'll catch him, Johnson says. Not because it's the desert and not because a man is soft. But because a man is dragging along a kid. And that ain't gonna get it. Woman must have told him, Johnson says. No shit, Brian asks. Johnson figures he's had enough of fat boy sarcastic crap, so he says, Don Juartero's gonna be one unhappy Hidalgo. And watches Brian's skin crawl. A visible shimmer across the white fatty flesh. Like a shadow racing across the sand flats. Brian's just terrified of Don Huertaro. Find him, Brian whines. I got two of the boys tracking now, Johnson says. And I'm going into town to pick up Rojas. Rojas is probably drunk. Probably, Johnson says. Drunk or sober, Johnson thinks. Rojas could track a fly across 80 acres of shit. What about the woman, Johnson asks. I'll take care of the woman, Brian says. Johnson's smile says, well, that'll be a first. But otherwise, he keeps his mouth shut and just puts his hat back on his head. I need him alive, Brian says. Johnson already knows this, but thinks it's too bad. Hard to catch a man like that, especially if the man knows you ain't gonna risk shooting him from a range. And you could bring a man down from a long way away in the desert. Long, flat country with no wind blowing. But catching him? Putting your arm on him and hauling him back like some wild spring calf? That's a different story altogether. What about the little boy? Johnson asks. What about the little boy? You want him alive too? I don't want him at all, Brian says. I won't kill a kid, says Johnson. Brian shrugs. Rojas will. Rojas will, Johnson muses. Rojas kill anything. Brian watches Johnson's lanky frame duck under the Arab doorway, and Brian hates the big cowboy. Just fucking detests the Gary Cooper act, and if he didn't need Johnson to run the place, he fires fire his ass pronto. But he does need him, and there's trouble ahead just sure as shit, so it's no time for any major personnel changes. Another time, though, and Brian is looking forward to kicking Johnson's ass clear off the ranch. Fantasizes about Johnson ending his days as some broken down drunk in the gas lamp quarter in San Diego. Pictures the cowboy eating his beans off some hot plate in the SRL hotel. With the smell of recent urine and imminent death unwashable from the walls. Fucking cowboy. For another time though. As a young Milanese boy is now edging his way into the room spying with almond eyes to see if the temper tantrum is done. Not now, Brian snaps, and the boy disappears from the doorway. Brian can hear his footsteps padding quickly down the hallway. Later, but not now, Brian thinks. Now, he has to deal with his dear old friend Elizabeth, who got him into this trouble. The cunt. Chapter 16 Brian comes into Elizabeth's room and sits down the big wicker chair and looks at her. She's sitting up in the bed, her right wrist and left ankle cuffed to the bedpost. She delicately crosses her right leg, as if her nudity would mean anything to him, but doesn't bother to cover her breasts. Brian can appreciate her body on a purely intellectual level. It is firm and well-toned, and Brian can appreciate the hard work. The gym time he won't do himself, but insists upon his young men. For a moment he idly wonders whether, if turned on her stomach, you've ruined the weekend, he says. May I have some clothes, please, bry? He shakes his head. I've always found that naked people are easier to talk to. Something about vulnerability, I suppose. I feel pretty vulnerable. Well, girl, you should. They look at each other for a few seconds. Then Brian sighs. Love is a fucked up thing, isn't it? You got that right, Bry. You told him. Told him what? Come on. I don't know what you're talking about, Bry. Something to do with Bobby, maybe? Well... I figured that. I've always liked you, Elizabeth, Brian said. Admired you, even. It's mutual, Brian. Haven't I treated you well? He asks. Very well. Giving you a place to stay? He asks. She nods. And then you do this to me? He whispers. Betray me? Put my business in jeopardy? My life in danger? She starts to lie again, but sees he's not going to believe her. So she goes the other way. Love's a fucked up thing, isn't it, Bri? Don't I know it, girl, he sighs. Don't I know it. This hangs in the air until he asks, Where's he headed? I don't know, Elizabeth answers. Honestly. I believe you, Brian says. Trouble is... Don Huertero won't. No? No. Although it would be more convincing if I at least made an effort to get it out of you. I understand. Oh, good, he says, oozing up from the chair. He slips his belt from the loops and wraps a tongue in around his hand. The buckle hangs, loose and ready. Not my face, okay, Bri? She asks, her voice breaking. Just not my face. She shrugs and starts in, asking where's he headed, only lethargically. He doesn't think to ask why Bobby Z took the boy. Chapter 17 The boy is asleep on Tim's back. Tim's hefting and piggyback style and can feel the weight of the boy's sleeping head on his shoulder. The boy is easier to carry this way, dead weight like a pack. And Tim carried heavier in the war, in that other desert. But in that other desert, they were delivering cheeseburgers and corn on the cob, pink lemonade and chocolate ice cream. Ice cream in the damn desert, Tim thinks, which is when he was sure they were going to win. When old uncle started to bring them chocolate ice cream in the desert. Not here. Here he knows he can expect no help from Uncle Sam. Just the reverse come to think of it. So he keeps the pace up and heads towards the mountains he could just start to see to the west. Head toward the mountains, Tim thinks. Isn't that some sort of beer commercial? Head towards the mountains is some kind of beer. But he can't let himself think about beer just now, as good as it sounds, because there ain't going to be no beer, and there ain't going to be no ice cream either. At least not until they get out of this desert. If they get out of this desert. Anyway, Tim thinks, if he didn't have the kid, he'd be jogging, pounding it out like a Pendleton or 29 Palms, and making good time. Beat his pursuers to the high ground and give him the AMF. Adios, motherfuckers. Vaya con deals. But jogging just doesn't make sense carrying this kind of load. Sweat too much, Tim figures. Lose too much body water, and the sun will be up soon. Just like in all those desert movies where they show you the sun then the guy staggering across the sand, then the sun again, and the guy drinking his last water, and then the sun again, and the guy dropping, then the sun, and the vulture circling. Well, shove that, Tim thinks, and fuck your beau guest. Make it to this next ridge line before dawn and find a place to lay up. Get off the ground a little into some shade. He knows what he's looking for. A little hole under some rock with some shade in the view. See what's coming after him. But he needs a high ground to do that, and he's in a race with the sunrise, so he decides to jog for a little bit. The boy wakes briefly, but gets used to the new rhythm and falls back to sleep. Tim jogs towards the hills, just turning chocolate brown in the dim light. Chapter 18 Johnson drives his truck about 10 miles in the direction of Ocotillo Wells. Turns onto an old dirt road and follows it another mile and a half into the bush. Pulls off at of a dilapidated adobe shack with a corrugated tin roof about half pulled off. Parks the truck and goes in. The place is dark. There ain't no windows, and the only light is from one kerosene lamp stinking and sputtering on an old cable spool they've been using as a table. The whole bar is furnished with your basic forage material. Chairs pulled out of someone's garbage heap. The cable spools from when they put the phone lines into Borrego. Some old soda pop cartons from the days they put soda pop in bottles. The bar itself is just a bunch of plywood hammered onto some sawhorses. But it doesn't make a shitload of difference, because the local Indians just go in there to load up on mezcal anyway. There's three or four of them in in there right now, sleeping off last night's drunk. Place stinks, Johnson thinks. Smells like shit. And he wonders when the last time was anybody dropped some gasoline in a match down the hole in the outhouse just outside the bar. Johnson puts a boot into one of the Indians to sleep on the floor. Where's Rojas? Johnson asks. Runty Indian looks up at him and blinks. Johnson figures on the scale of things around here, these boys are on the lowest order. If the whites are on top, which they sure as hell are, and the Mexicans a distant second and the Kawias third, then it's just hard to say where these little brown brothers are. They aren't even Kawias. Come from a tribe so small they've either forgotten their name, or just plain ain't saying. Just so goddamn miserable a group of people that they all just got lost somewhere. Slipped into a haze of mescal, glue sniffing and snorting on them spray paint cans, and became worthless for just about anything except tracking. They could track better than a coyote which is why Johnson has made the trip here to find Rojas. Rojas' real name is Lobo Rojas. Red wolf. After those little Mexican wolves, they just about succeeded in shooting out in these parts. Fucking little shits were murder on the calves in the spring, so it's a good thing the local ranchers had just about exterminated them before the EPA could come in. Rescue the murderous fuckers. Anyway, Johnson figures that Rojas has picked himself an apt nickname, because he's as murderous a little fucker as ever walked barely upright. Roja, where is he? Johnson demands. In back, the man croaks. His eyes are crossed and there's a little ring of gold paint around his mouth. Gold is their favorite color for snorting, for some reason. In back. Johnson slips his pistol from his holster and kicks the door to the small back room open. Rojas rolls off the woman he's lying on and lands on his feet, his big goddamn knife held back near his ribs where no one can kick it out of his hand. His eyes are bloodshot and puffy, but still coal black and burning hot. It's true, Johnson thinks as he looks at the naked, runty Indian pointing a knife at him. Rojas wakes up angry. Johnson thumbs the hammer back and points the pistol at Rojas's square forehead. You spit at me, you little cocksucker, Johnson warns. I'll blow your head off. Rojas, he likes to spit when you first wake him up. I'll cut your balls off and feed him to this whore. She don't look like she missed a lot of meals to me, Johnson says. Are you sure she's still hungry? The woman is asleep. I have work for you, Johnson says. Rojas shakes his head. I'm drinking and fucking. I need you to track someone. Rojas shrugs. It's what they always need them for. Some Mexican bolts in the desert and they can't find him. They get Rojas. Or some coyote gets smart ass, camps himself out in their part of the desert and starts rustling their Mexicans. They send Rojas out. Rojas finds the coyote and leaves his head stuck on a mesquite pole. Discourages that kind of thing. You want a fucker, Johnson? Rojas asks. You can. No, I don't think I could, Johnson answers. Come on, and get some clothes on before the track gets cold. Track gets cold for you, Johnson, not for me. Yeah, 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 come on. I'd rather fuck instead. Me too, Johnson says. But I got an old boy out there already killed about three of my Kaweahs. Knowing that would go to Rojas. Not that he want to get revenge for the Kaweahs but because he'd want to show that he could do what they couldn't. Rojas has an ego. I don't care, Rojas says. I'm drunk. You were born drunk. My mother, she was drunk. Else why, she would have aborted you. And true enough, Rojas is an ugly man. Short, squat, with a flat nose and eyes set apart too wide. Hands and feet like paws but shit, that nose could smell. Am I going to have to shoot you? Johnson asks. You're too slow to shoot me, Rojas says, and Johnson sees him draw that knife back a little like he's getting ready to come ahead with it. And he might be right, Johnson thinks. He just might be able to stick me with that thing before I could put him down. Okay, Johnson says. He lowers the gun. I'll get me somebody else. You go back to that fat woman. Johnson watches as Rojas grabs his mezcal bottle off the floor and takes a long, defiant pull. Climbs back onto the filthy mattress, lays a knife by his hand, and slaps the woman awake. Tells her something in Spanish, which Johnson doesn't quite know the words to, but the meaning of which is clear. Johnson lets Rojas get into it a little bit, until Rojas' ugly face is all screwed up and his eyes are closed. Then Johnson whacks him behind the ear with a pistol butt. Once, twice and watches Rojas' little body go limp. Johnson holsters his gun, hefts Rojas over his shoulder and grabs his clothes with his other hand, tips his hat to the woman and carries Rojas outside and dumps him into the bed of the truck. There's already three of Rojas' buddies sitting like dogs in the truck, waiting. Already figured there was maybe some work. They could make some money and buy some mezcal or a case or two to a tester. Johnson gets behind the wheel and heads back to the ranch and sighs. Chapter 19 Escobar's funeral is everything Garuza expected and more. The women are wailing like someone took their welfare checks from them, and the men are standing in their cheap suits looking grim-faced even under the wraparound shades. To make Garuza's afternoon even happier, Escobar's younger male relatives are decked out in their very best Monday go-to-funeral gang attire. Clean white t-shirts, pressed jeans two-size-too-large, and Raiders jackets. Raiders jackets, Gruza thinks, like any of these glue-sniffin' mokes would know Kenny Stabler from a pimple on their asses. And they got the shaved heads, the badass cholo attitude, and they're giving Gruza, the sole Anglo in the congregation, their very best teenage murderous looks. And if it wasn't Jorge's funeral, Gruza would like to take one or two of them outside in the alley and wash their mouths out with the barrel of his 9mm Glock. Leave their teeth like chicklets on the pavement and walk away whistling. But it is a funeral, and there's a truce of sorts on. Which is also a good thing, Gruza muses as the priest babbles on in Spanish. Because not only are Escobar's younger male relatives gang bangers, they bang for at least two different gangs that Gruza can recognize. There's a bunch from Quattro Flats there, and TMC, and maybe even East Coast Crips. And all it would take is for one of these mental defectives to start throwing down for them to start blowing each other away. Which, ordinarily, Gruza would consider not only entertainment, but a real benefit to society. Except today would be a real pain in the ass because he has business to do. So he sits, ignoring the dirty stairs, and concentrates on the big photo of Escobar staring back at him from an easel by the coffin. Wonders what the Mexicans did in the days before Kodak. Whether they stuck a painting of the deceased up there or what. And after an endless goddamn sermon by the Mexican priest, Gruza joins the line to file past the casket and pay his respects. Gives the sympathies to Jorge's weeping mother, a couple of sniffling aunts, two or three cousins, and then Jorge's brother asks to speak to him outside, which is what Garuz has been counting on. Jorge's brother is serious people. Old time cholo ETA from the days when the Mexican gangs defended themselves instead of killing each other. Luis Escobar hasn't been crying either. Eyes dry as a stone, man but black with anger. Luis has done long, stand-up stretched in the joint. A murder, too, and an aggravated assault. And he was an ETA leader in the joint, gurus and knows. Those black eyes that stared down the Panthers and the Aryan Brotherhood and the mob. And now he's out and running the old network. And the man is wearing a suit, Guruza and notes. A real suit. Not some baby gang clown outfit. He's wearing a good suit and showing his brother some real respect. You had to respect Luis Escobar, and Gruza isn't going to give him any shit. How'd this happen, Luis asks. Gruza shrugs. Jorge got fucked, Luis. By who? Informer he was working with. Name of? Gruza looks up and shakes his head sadly. Bobby Z, Luis. Bobby Z killed my brother, Luis asked. Bobby Z is not a killer. I don't know he pulled the trigger, Gruza warned. He might have had one of Huar men do that. Why? They had some kind of beef, I guess, Garuza says. You knew Jorge. He could be rough sometimes. Could make people angry. Anyway, don't worry. We're going to find him. The agency is leaving no rock unturned until we find Bobby Z and bring him to You won't find him, Louis says calmly. It's not a complaint. Just a matter of fact. We'll find him. Which is what Garruza figures. Garruza knows most people think that California is more or less a part of the United States. But if you see what Tad Gruza sees, you know it's really part of Mexico. The Mexicans go around all but invisible. But they see everything, hear everything, and say nothing except to each other. Luis Escobar will have an army out there. A few soldiers actively looking, but a whole fucking county reporting anything they saw. You don't really see the Mexicans in California, Gruza muses as he looks at the stone-cold figure of Luis Escobar. But they see you. Good luck, Tim Kearney. Now, Luis, Gruza says... I have to warn you against taking the law into. you would come after me. Gruza pretends to think about that for a few seconds before he answers. No, Luis. You do what you do. Jorge was my friend. Carnal. Blood of my blood, Luis. Blood of my blood, my ass. The blood in my dick. Just so you know, Luis isn't even in the movie. I don't know how that makes sense, but he ain't. Chapter 20 One Way stirs under the park bench and pokes his eyes off from under his poncho hood. The clouds over the ocean are a rosy pink and the beach is deserted. He sniffs the air, looks around and sniffs the air again. Then he crawls off from under the bench, straightens his stiff, cold knees and contemplates the ocean. He smells the air again. Scratches his scraggly beard and runs his fingers through his long, dirty hair. He turns his back to the ocean and looks east to where the sun is just beginning to top the Laguna Hills. Smells the air to the east. Looks back at the ocean again. Then jumps in the air and shouts, He's back! He's back! Runs down to the ocean. Jumps ankle-deep into the low surf and starts splashing himself with freezing water. Yelling, He's back! He's back! Bobby Z has returned! This goes on long enough to attract the attention of Laguna police, who are just so pleased that One Way has washed himself that they let it go for a while before hauling him to the clinic. One Way doesn't mind. Soaked with seawater, draped in a blanket, he sits handcuffed in the back of the cruiser, smiling, laughing, exclaiming the good news to all that will hear Bobby Z has returned. He's coming from the east, one way confides to the nurse. Chapter 21 Tim finds what he's looking for about an hour after dawn. He risks moving in daylight because he figured he had a decent lead. And anyway, he'd trade that risk for the right location to lay up. The right location is about 50 yards up a canyon in the lower reaches of the hills. It's a small depression underneath the rock shelf, and it's got a nice big rock in front of it. Peeking out from beside that rock, Tim can see the flats below, and figures that what he can see, he can shoot. He sets Kit down on the slope and checks the tiny cave for snakes before bringing the boy in. He sets him down, tells him not to be afraid, he'll be back in a minute, then breaks off a smoke tree branch and spends a good half hour cleaning up his tracks and making a new trail deeper in the canyon that comes back into the cave from above. Give the bad guys at least a chance of walking past the cave. And anyway, it's always preferable to shoot an enemy in the back if you have that opportunity. When he climbs back into the cave, Kit says he's tired of playing Marine. How about Batman and Robin? Tim asks. Kit dismisses this with a polite frown. How about X-Men? Kit asks. Tim's not entirely displeased because he wilded away a shitload of time in Saudi reading X-Men comics while waiting for the A-10 to pound the Iraqis in the wet sand. You like X-Men? Kit nods. Who do you want to be, he asks. Wolverine, Tim says. Unless you want to be. You can be Wolverine, Kit says. How about if I'm Cyclops? Okay. Okay. A minute later, Tim asks, Cyclops, are you hungry? I sure am, Wolverine. Tim unwraps two of the energy bars and hands one to the boy with a bottle of water. Then he starts to fill, strip and clean the rifle. An act as automatic and comforting to an ex-marine as saying the rosary is to a priest. The kid devours the energy bar, swallows some water and asks, How about we're trapped in the desert and... And bad gods are chasing us, and we hide in this cave. Okay, says Tim. Sounds about right. Chapter 22 Monk's on his way to get a latte and The Economist and to sit outside savoring both when he hears the news of Bobby Z's return. The prophecy comes from one way, of course. Freshly released from the mental health clinic and now striding the sidewalks of the PCH, proclaiming the good news of modern man. As a long-time Laguna resident, Monk knows one way only too well and is used to his lunatic rendition of the legend of Bobby Z. This morning, he even gets one way a dollar and is a little unsettled when the whack job crumples a bill and tosses it into the gutter, exclaiming, Who needs money? Bobby Z's returned to claim his kingdom. This last bit unsettles Monk some more. Mostly for the reason that he has pretty much claimed Bobby's kingdom since the latter went off the screen about four months ago. Off the screen, literally. Because Monk is a computer whiz who controls Bobby's interests stateside. On Monk's hard drives, floppy disks, and CD-ROMs are the codes that tell the whereabouts of the wages of the sin. The immense fortune built on smoke. Lots of it. Wafting skyward from the best living rooms, patios, and hot tubs of the West Coast. Monk know where the treasure be, I, Jim, knows further who the retailers are, knows further that the Z Empire, always on a cutting edge, is on the verge of going completely electric. Except, of course, for the hard cash that has been stored away against a rainy day, which Monk has decided has arrived since Bobby went off the screen somewhere in Southeast Asia. Monk tried for months to raise a signal. Tapping away at the keyboard like, come in, Rangoon. But Bobby didn't come in. So after a while, Monk figured that his best friend Bobby had met his fate in the treacherous mountains of Southeast Asia. as had so many other American boys. And now, the empire was Monk's own. As was the stash of cash. Carl Sagan numbers. Hidden for posterity. So Monk has, to his acknowledged shame... Mixed feelings about one-way prophesying Bobby's return. It's human nature, Monk muses. Original sin, perhaps. But man is just prone to the idea that if you hold somebody else's money long enough, you start to think it's yours. Monk knows about original sin because he used to be a real monk. Left Laguna High for Notre Dame and took it all pretty seriously, as evidenced by the fact that he then entered the seminary and emerged a Jesuit priest. But even that level of commitment wasn't serious enough for James P. McGuane. So down the line, he entered a monastery deep in the desert of New Mexico, where the monks basically dug irrigation ditches, cultivated agave plants, and marketed agave jam to the health food market. One day, the senior monks took James aside, noted that he had taken computer course to Notre Dame, and asked him to develop a mailing list of customers. Although Monk wouldn't realize it for months, This was the beginning of the end for him as an actual monk, because Monk found a new religion, the computer. Within two years, the Good Brothers were marketing their foul jam in locations as diverse as New York, Amsterdam, and Santa Fe. And Monk even had the Good Brothers producing a catalog, a newsletter, and a recipe book. And the brothers were making money hand over fist, and Monk was in charge of counting it. Monk wakes up one morning and... In the midst of his silent contemplation, what other kind is there in a monastery? Loses his faith. Just like that. Elusive as morning mist. Here and then gone, his faith deserts him. On this early morning walk in the desert, Monk pulls a reverse Moses. There's no burning bush or anything. Monk's just walking around looking at the brown mountains and suddenly decides there's no God doesn't realize why it didn't occur to him before. He's been in this dump for years, digging ditches, eating shitty food, keeping monk-like silence for all but essential communications and the usual chanting, and for what? For Nihil, that's what. For nothing, nada, for the great emptiness. Ever the fanatic, Monk becomes not only an atheist, but a nihilist. Leaves his brothers that afternoon in a bus headed west. Bumps into his old classmate Bobby Z and they get talking computers and mailing lists. A monster is born. Monk attacks the dope trade with all the single-minded fervor he once gave to God. Monk creates a worldwide communications and accounting system impenetrable to the mere mortals of the DEA, the FBI, or Interpol. The one entity he fears is the Society of Jesus. He knows from personal experience just how thorough they are. But they're too busy with their own rackets to take an interest in the Z Empire. Out of which flows everything Monk now possesses. An interesting career. An enormous house on Emerald Bay. On a cliff hanging over the Blue Pacific. And a seemingly endless supply of money. His own and now Bobby's. You've seen him? Monk asked one way. In here... One-Way answers, pointing at his own head. Monk figures that encompasses an entire universe of possibilities and starts to breathe a little easier. But you haven't actually seen him, Monk presses, in the flesh. Who has? One-Way answers, nothing deterred. Actually, Monk has, several times, but not for years. Do you know Bobby? Monk asks. Does anybody? With this, One Way paces exuberantly away to a tourists who are just now emerging from the hotels for their morning coffees. He's so exuberant that he gets picked up again by the Laguna Cops. Familiar with this problem, although not always to this degree, the Laguna Cops know how to deal with it. They drive One Way south on the PCH and drop him off. Then it's Dana Point's problem. For Monk, the issue isn't that simple. He gets his latte and his economist and sits outside at the bookstore-cum-cafe, but can't quite concentrate on the future of the euro-dollar. If Bobby's back, he contemplates, if the random elements of the universe have lined up in that precise order that will make one way for once cogent, then some interesting and unsettling questions must be answered. Why, for instance, hasn't Bobby contacted him, by fax, by computer, by messenger? even by the antiquated dead drop along the walk at Dana Point. Could Bobby the boy wonder or smell smelled a rat? Sussed out Monk's Prince John to his King Richard? If Z is back, Monk wonders, where is he? And what, pray tell, to do about him? Chapter 23 Johnson figures Bobby Z has gone to ground. Either that, or he's wandering around lost in the sagebrush, and they're going to find him dead in a day or two. Which might fry Brian, but ain't no sweat off his own dick, because riding around the desert watching Rojas and his three compadres sniff around like dogs gets positively tedious after a while. They picked up his tracks by the cliffside. Didn't seem like much point climbing down to see what was left of the moron to have flown the Humvee off the edge. And Rojas, even drunker than a skunk, could tell Johnson that the white man they were looking for hadn't gone over the edge with the motorcycle. He'd walked west with the boy. Then the boy's tracks stopped. And it didn't take no damn Indian to look at those tracks and figure that the man had hathed the boy and was carrying them. The footprints in the sand were that much deeper. So Bobby Z was on the move, but a lot slower than he ought to be. So Johnson has sent Rojas and friends out on the trot while he followed it out a walking on horseback. Let Rojas run him down, pin him, and then figure out just how the hell to bag him. That old Max wants him alive. So they're tracking him west, across the flats and into the foothills, and then up into a canyon. And the Indians are getting excited because they could sense the quarry slowing by his tracks. Johnson watching them work way out in front of him like dogs. Rojas starts up the canyon wall, then stops and starts backtracking, and Johnson takes that moment to wipe his sunglasses on the front of his shirt while the Indians are conferring. He puts the glasses back on in time to see one of the Indians drop like he's been shot. Shit, Johnson thinks. Forgot about that missing rifle. He wonders just where the hell a beach-bum dope dealer learned to shoot like that. And even though he's probably out of range slides off his horse and finds a rock to get behind. Shit, Johnson thinks he watches Roja and the other Indians run to shelter. It has all the makings of a long day. Chapter 24 That's a real gun, isn't it? Kid asks. Pretend, Tim answers, a little preoccupied with what's going on below him on the canyon floor. One of the trackers is down, and the other two are behind rocks. Real, Kid insists. That man fell down when you got shot. That's the rules, Tim answers. Anyways, I told you not to peek. Is that blood on his leg? Red paint, Tim says. Now get back and lay down. I don't want the bad mutants to know there's two of us. This is Bobby Z's kid, all right, Tim thinks, because the boy has like no fear as he slides to the back of the cave. Which is a good thing, because Tim needs to concentrate on the wounded man, who should by now be screaming for help, because that's the idea. Get one man down, and then pick off the others when they come to help him. That's the game. This is one tough little fucker out there, though, because he's lying there tearing off a piece of his pants leg with his teeth and making it into a tourniquet. Smart, tough little fucker, and no one's coming for him either. I guess, Tim thinks, they know the game. And Tim just doesn't have the heart to put one in the guy's head. It seems pointless. And anyway, a wounded man's better than a dead man. They're going to have to deal with him one way or the other. You stay back, he says to the boy. I'm staying, I'm staying. But they aren't shooting, Tim thinks. That would be the thing to do. Just start blasting away at the cave while one guy runs out and brings back his buddy. Unless they haven't figured out where the shot came from yet, which is a possibility. Or they're already in the brush, working their way around. Which is another possibility. Bad mutants. Why do they want to kill me anyway, Tim wonders with some annoyance. Why are people always putting me in this position? Why ask why, he tells himself. He puts the crosshairs on the down man's head and takes a deep breath. Chapter 25 Boy's got a soft side to him, Johnson decides. He's got to know by now that none of us is going to risk his ass to go out there and help that old Indian. So the next best thing to put him down for good so you don't have to worry about him. But there ain't been no shot. Boy's got a soft side to him. So Johnson slips the Winchester from his saddle holster, takes his handkerchief and ties it around the barrel. Then he steps out from behind the rock and starts walking towards the canyon floor counting on the boy's soft side. Johnson reached the wounded man to see that he's probably going to live. Your basic kawiyah is a tough little fucker. Johnson looks up at the cave and is annoyed that Rojas was so goddamn stupid as to walk into this trap. On the bright side, they did have old Bobby got on the ground. Looks like we got us a situation here, Johnson yells. Tim knows what the situation is, too. The situation is that he's fucked up again and got himself trapped in a cave in the middle of a desert. Shit, there might as well be lawn sprinklers out there. But he doesn't think he needs an answer, so he just sights in on the cowboy's chest and waits. Shit, Mr. Z, we got you trapped, Johnson hollers. Tim lowers the sight and puts a round into the dirt by Johnson's boot, just to remind him that things aren't maybe all that one-sided. Now why did you do that, Johnson hollers. I have a problem with impulse control, Tim yells back. Johnson's all of a sudden thinking that maybe the boy's soft side might have a hard edge. And isn't all that enthused about feeling that hard edge slice smack into his head in the form of a 7.62 bullet. Also, the boy's got himself a pretty good position up there. Tough nut to crack. So Johnson decides to take another tack. How about we make a deal, Mr. Z? He yells. Tim hollers back. What kind of deal? 916 633 1537. Ratchet at gmail.com. Ratchet Book Club on Twitter. Lee Review on Podchaser. The cool thing about it is you can review for the show and for episodes separately. Um, I do want to thank the ladies from Wine, Dine, and Storytime for being the first ones to help me buy more books. Uh, They donated to the Buy Me A Coffee, which is really Buy Me A Book and a Movie Motherfucker website. But you know, you gotta say it nicely for the people out there. I really do appreciate that. Uh, Y'all can go to patreon.com slash single simulcast to join that group and get exclusive content. Or you can go to Buy Me A Coffee and help me buy some books and some movies after this. I don't know. If y'all believe me yet when I tell you about how stupid the movie is compared to the book of this, all I'm gonna say is all y'all know that that pedophile Paul Walker wasn't gonna change his hair to a brunette or to a black. And they said that Bobby Z's hair was black, not blonde. But Paul Walker showed up with blonde hair looking like nothing was wrong. Also, they have a 15 year old playing a six year old. Also, They have a black guy playing a guy that they've already clearly said in the book is an Anglo-Saxon. This isn't like how they took Lavender out of the book and and she was black in the books. And she was black in the first couple movies, but she didn't have a speaking role. And then all of a sudden, when they gave her speaking lines in the Harry Potter book, all of a sudden she became this white woman. This ain't the same as that. Gruz is a big part of this entire book. And they made him into, into Larry Fishburne, which isn't a bad thing if it was part of the book. This isn't like um, the girl from the Hunger Games where you didn't know what race she was, but you could just assume, based on what they wrote, that she was supposed to be black. They said he's white. God, I feel like the people who argue about fucking why Iron Fist has to be a white man. But at the same time, it just goes to show that this whole movie is just bad on a million different levels. Feel free to watch it. Who knows? Who knows? I might force the people on bad meaning bad or bad meaning good to watch it. That shit would be hilarious. Anyhow, thank y'all so much for checking us out. I greatly appreciate it. Y'all be good. I'm going to holler at you later. Peace.